this, like every other passage of the Old Testament, prepares us for the coming work of Christ and reinforces the work of Christ that we are experiencing on this side of the cross. So let me read a few verses uh, from each of the chapters, and then uh, we'll pray. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I'll send rain on the earth, forty days, forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let us, uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, Your Word that is written to us, Word that is heard, Word that is confor- con- confirmed by the Holy Spirit and confirmed in the sacraments and confirmed in the heavens, even as we still see the bow hung in the heavens, assuring that the next major redemptive event is Jesus' return. Make us faithful this day. Convert those who have not bowed the knee to you. Draw back those who are in rebellion. Encourage those who are downcast and strengthen everyone, every follower of Christ, for a new day of responding to your grace. We pray it in the strong name of Christ. All God's men said together, amen. Every text of Scripture is uh, intended to reveal three things. Our need for redemption, God's provision of redeeming grace, and our response to that provision of redeeming grace. And these three chapters are no exception. God's, I mean, our need, God's supply, 
and our response, all of those are present in this text. And through the Old Testament in particular, we see that the roles that Christ would come to fill are specifically matched to those three aspects of Revelation. Christ is a prophet. He reveals to us our need for salvation. Christ is a priest. He provides the provision for our salvation. And Christ is a king. He shows us, He commands us how we must respond to that grace. That's the way I want to approach these three chapters. I want to show you how this is, not, this is more than a story about a flood destroying the earth. Uh, this, is, this is more than questions about why were there seven pairs of these animals and only two of the other kind. How long was the ark? How big was the ark? Did the waters cover all uh, Australia? Were there kangaroos on the ark? Is the ark in Turkey or is it in Kentucky? And all of those questions, we're not going to... We're not going to get into those. I'll say at the beginning, of course, there was a flood. It's written in Scripture. It's historical. But God does everything ultimately for our redemption. This is no exception. Let me start this way. <clears throat> uh, years ago, I read a, a, a collection of letters from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and the former slave trader turned pastor, and uh, for, there were letters from John Newton to his young protege named John Rylands Jr. And John Rylands Jr. Uh, had um, a, a lot of needs, a lot of uh, struggles as a young pastor, and he found a spiritual father in John Newton. And on <clears throat> one occasion, he was sharing. His struggles in his churches, he was utterly demoralized. He said, whoever is just not off the rails spiritually is lukewarm at best. Christ is asleep and the whole ship is sinking, he said in his letter to Newton. Talking about his church, talking about the world. Now, we can feel that way, can't we? We may not be as bold as John Rylands Jr., but we can feel my world, my life is falling apart. This whole world is falling apart. Every time I watch the news, the world is falling apart. The whole world is possessed by evil, and Christ is asleep, we think. But He's not asleep, and He's never been asleep. And if anybody had a, could have had a, a, a justified reason for thinking, God has forgotten me. It could have been Noah in that little boat when the whole world was flooded. But because Christ was not asleep, Noah was saved. You and I are here. Jesus came. In these chapters, Christ is revealed. And He's revealed, first of all, as a prophet. I want you to notice uh, in <clears throat> these several verses how this comes to us. Verses 1, 5, 9, and 16. We've read 1 and 5, God said to Noah. Uh, verse 5, God commanded him. Uh, verse 9, uh, God told Noah 
uh, commanded Noah, take male and female into the ark. In verse 16, those who entered male and female did so, went in as God had commanded him. <clears throat> now, when we see those, those words, commanded, when we see God commanding His people or God, God directly commanding His people or commanding His people through other means, other people, we see the prophetic role of Christ. Christ, our catechism, the catechism of our church says, Christ executes the office of a prophet by declaring to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. Now, some of us who have, who have been Christians for a while uh, can sometimes chafe against God's commands. Sometimes we can complain about legalism. Or we can complain about how many do's and don'ts there are in the Bible. But do you, do you realize how blessed we are to have these commands of God? Because God says to us, God, God tells us in, in Deuteronomy 4, for instance, as well as other places, I have given these commands to you that life would go well with you. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. God never gives commands to us to ruin our lives, to hinder our fun, to keep us back from something that would be really fulfilling. Christ's commands are always for our best, and they're for our salvation. It does, of course, it doesn't mean that, that uh, God's going to love us more for keeping His commands. Of course, it doesn't mean that we're going to be rewarded with salvation for keeping His commands. If Christ is your Savior, you're loved as much as you're ever going to be loved. But He gives you His commands that life will go well with you. Is it not clearly illustrated in the life of Noah? These four mentions of, of commanding and the, the ones that precede it, did it not result in life? Why did Noah and his family receive the commands and the others did not? Because God was gracious. Don't you think Noah would have had occasion to doubt God's goodness with his commands? He's out there hammering away at the ark. People are making fun of him. Look at Noah's folly. He's building a big ark. The radar, the weather the radar doesn't show any rain in sight. How could he be so foolish to think about his children? They're being scorned at school. He's being, he's being cut out of the clubs, out of social circles. His wife is, is being made fun of. Don't you think Noah would have had occasion to doubt the goodness of God relative to his commands? Why do you, why do you, ruin, why do you make life so narrow for me when everybody else is having a good time? Don't you think? that after Noah had been on the ark for a while, he could have thought, why are you doing this to me? How could this have been a good idea? I would rather have drowned than to live with these stinking animals, not to mention my seven other family members. Shut up in this boat forever. No mention of a crow's nest for Noah. He didn't get away from it. He was in it. Some people said the ark is like the church, or the church is like the ark. If it weren't for the danger on the outside, the stench on the inside would be impossible to deal with. Don't you think Noah would have had opportunity, would have had occasion, justified opportunity to doubt God's goodness in His commands, but is there any doubt that God's commands were best? They resulted in life. 
And it not only resulted in life for Noah and his family, but his commands resulted in life for us. We wouldn't have been here if God had not saved Noah, if God had not made Noah obedient. There would have been no Christ. The, the, Noah was the line through which the Messiah came. There would have been no Christ for us had Noah not obeyed God's simple commands, build an ark and get on it. Now, some of you may be struggling with the commands of God. Uh, maybe you are uh, thinking that, um, that God is, is so narrow-minded. Why does He insist that you have only one wife? You don't mess around with another woman. Why is God so narrow-minded that He would, he would, uh, he would uh, command a portion of your income to be given to His work? Why would God be so narrow-minded as, uh, as to call unethical some of the business practices that are legal? Why would God be, why does God want me to pay so much attention to my children, grandchildren? Why does God want me to forgive? Why does God want me not to, to, to store up bitterness in my heart? Why does God tell me not to cheat when it would be so much more profitable? Why does God tell me uh, that, uh, that uh, I should uh, not let my anger fly? Why, should, why does God tell me I should watch my tongue and not gossip and why does God tell me not to click on that site or look at that thing or, or dally with that sin? Why does, God, why does God want to ruin my fun? I know it's wrong for everybody else, but in this case, it must be right. And however much by faith, you must trust that all of these commands, these do's and don'ts, come from a Father who loves you. Loves you so much that He gave His Son not just to die for you, but to tell you by His Word and by His Spirit the will of God for your salvation. We see in these commands to Noah and the life that resulted the prophetic role of Jesus Christ and praise Him for it. The other role that we see about of Christ is His priesthood. <clears throat> Christ is a priest. Now, verse 16, I want you to look there again at chapter 7, verse 16. Those that entered, male and female, and all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. It's just a few words, but it says a lot. The Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door with Noah in front of it, putting Noah in the midst of his people. God could have said, okay, no, you build the ark. I'm going to fly you over to Australia, put you on a high point. The floodwaters might not reach that far, and then, and then, uh, and then <clears throat> I'll get you back to Turkey when the ark comes to rest and the seven others will be saved and animals and so forth. But no, God put Noah in the ark with the people. Why did he do that? The same reason he puts all of those agents of redemption in the Old Testament with their people. Moses stayed with his people even when he didn't want to. Even when they threw rocks at him. Joshua stayed with his people 
Jeremiah stayed with his people when they didn't listen to him. They went into into exile. Uh, And Jesus came to be among us. God could have saved any of those Old Testament peoples without that prophet or that priest or that king. But he always put someone, his mouthpiece, in the midst of them so that when he said, I am with you, they could look at that representative and say, yeah, he is with us through that person. And God could have saved us in any other way than through his son. But his son, he could have sent us a letter, could have sent us a postcard. But he came. And he came and took up our flesh and was with us. He was shut up in this ark of trouble with us, bearing our image, our flesh, all of our same burdens and concerns. This isn't an incidental detail about Noah with the people in the ark. God shut him in there with them to tell them, I am with you, and I'm bringing a Messiah who will be with you. Noah smelled the same smells that they smelled. He was seasick when they were seasick. His stomach grumbled when he was hungry like they were hungry. He shared their struggles, their sufferings with them. Christ is our priest. He came. He came in the flesh to be with us. And the catechism, again, the catechism, the catechism for those of you outside the Presbyterian church is just a, a, a... a short uh, statement of faith written in the 1600s, summarizing biblical doctrine, memorizable. And uh, the, the, the definition, of the, we have this question, what is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? How does he carry that out? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a priest by his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to bring us to God. And in continually making intercession for us. We know well the work of Christ on the cross. We talk about that a lot. But we sometimes forget that that same Christ who was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, continues to pray for us. He continues to be a priest for us. Let me read you a slightly longer statement in the Westminster Larger Catechism about Christ's work of intercession. Follow this as I read it. Christ maketh intercession by His appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of His obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring His will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience notwithstanding their daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. I know it's hard for you to process that just hearing it, but let me break it down for you a little bit so you can carry it with you. Christ, as our priest, our priestly intercessor is one who does so incarnationally. We've been talking about Christ becoming like us, walking on the earth, fulfilling the law in our place, dying in our place. But don't forget that Christ was raised from the dead, and He had a human body. People didn't detect right away it was Jesus. 
They didn't detect that he wasn't, he wasn't glowing. He didn't have a halo hanging over his, over his head. He was a human being. He was able to eat food. He walked and talked. And he bore the scars still bears the scars on his hands. When he ascended to heaven, he wasn't morphed into something else. He ascended into heaven and keeps that same body so that when Christ intercedes for you and me, when he appears before the throne of God, he doesn't come like a ghost. He comes in your and my body. And he pleads, you notice what he says, he pleads saying, uh, d- despite their daily failings, remember these scars. I've paid for them. Second way he prays for us, not just incarnationally, but vicariously. That is, he, he continues to understand what it is like to be us. He understands our suffering. He understands our feelings. He has suffered in every way as we do. He, is, he was tempted in every way. He was tried, tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Christ uh, experienced every form of human deprivation. And Christ experienced the entire anatomy of our emotional experience. If you studied the Psalms with us, or you studied Hebrews with us, I've made that point, that the Psalms were given to us as a record of the emotional sufferings Christ took up on our part. So when you go to Jesus, you don't need to think, I know, Jesus, you don't understand this, I mean, losing friends. I know you don't understand what it's like to be depressed. I know you don't understand what it's like to not know where your next meal is coming from. I know you don't know what it's like to be rejected, to be rejected by your father. I know you, oh yes, he does. He knows everything. You don't have to spend a lot of time explaining it to him. Jesus, this is what I'm experiencing. I know, I know what that's like, he says. And with his body... He appears before the Father to make incarnational and vicarious intercession for you. The third way he acts as our priest is by defending us. It was God who shut the door behind uh, Noah. And it is God who shuts you into Christ. When you ask Him to save you, it's God who shuts you into Christ. It's, it's, it's God who closes you to Him. It's God who unites you to Him. And united to Him, closed into Christ, there is no one who can take you from there. He holds you in His hand, and Christ's hand is held by the Father's hand. The third role we see Christ, uh, uh, which anticipates Christ, Uh, The coming of Christ is the kingship of Christ anticipated uh, by the way uh, Noah responded and obeyed God's commandments. And in this kingly role, after Noah leaves the ark, I want you to uh, notice again 
the language. I want you to listen to this language of, of uh, describing Noah leaving the ark and see if it doesn't remind you of a story you've already studied. Noah built an altar, verse 20 of chapter 8, Noah built an altar. Let me say one thing, I forgot this, I want you to see this. Verse 1 of chapter 8, God remembered Noah. You know, I've, I've talked in the past when I've taught <clears throat> Hebrews and some of the Psalms about this Hebrew characteristic of, of telling stories, not just poetry, but of stories. It's called chiasm, and it comes after the, the Greek letter chi, an X. And the Hebrews, when the Hebrews wanted to make a point, the main point was put in the center of the poem or the narrative, not at the beginning in a topic sentence like we do. It's put in the center. And so this uh, chapters 7 through 9 form a unit, and in the precise, the precise center is chapter 8, verse 1. Here's the, here's the, 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 the main idea of the whole story. Chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. So that's the reason the, Noah and his family are saved, and that's the reason the waters subside, and now that's the reason Noah comes out of the ark, and because God remembered Noah, Noah remembers God. Verse 20, chapter 8, Noah built an altar. Built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burn offerings on the altar. Now, someone asked me last night, uh, uh, if, uh, if Noah only had two of each animal, why did he kill them all in this, uh, in this first sacrifice? But remember, there were seven of the, of the clean kind, so there's some left over. It's not that they couldn't have had babies on the ark either, so, but these are, the, these are the things we don't want to get bogged down in. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Just a note there, I'm not going to, I'm not going to curse the ground again, despite the fact that man hasn't changed just by being on the ark. I'm going to continue to be, I'm going to be gracious, even though man continues to rebel against me. <clears throat> Neither will I ever again uh, strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then Noah goes on uh, to become an ombudsman and to raise uh, uh, plants and animals, and uh, the earth thrives. Now, I said, uh, does it remind you of something that occurred earlier that you've already studied? And, of course, that was, that was uh, Adam and Eve, the creation of the world. In the flood, God effectively takes the creation back to its original form. When God said, God spoke and the world was created, but it was formless and void. And then the first act was to divide the waters from the, from the earth. God took it all the way back to that formlessness and, and, um, and vacuousness. And then he's starting over. He divides the waters from the land. He brings man and animals. He causes the earth again to bring forth flora and fauna. And he gives, he gives Noah a command. Be fruitful and multiply. Let's start again. Let's start over. I want you 
to be my steward. I want you to be my king in the earth. So Christ the king uh, delivers from judgment, delivers them from ju- through Noah, delivers from judgment. Through Noah, he defends from the enemies, the people from their enemies, the animals from their enemies, and he demonstrates by his worship that we're destined for glory. And then he takes us to the, ne- the next point, which is that we, in response to this grace, this, respace, this, this uh, grace that we've received from Christ as prophet, priest, and king, we are called to be kings. We're called to exercise stewardship in this creation in the name of Christ. We're not escapists. We're not those who say, like one famous Bible teacher used to say, don't polish brass on a sinking ship. You know, don't, don't invest anything in this world. Do what you can to survive it and then just wait for Jesus to come get you. But just quite the contrary. This is our Father's world, and we're told that we're going to inherit this earth. So we're called to live now according to the principles of that kingdom which is coming. And every aspect of that kingdom that we bring to bear on this world is not only testimony to what is coming in the world to come, but God says in His words, somehow it will be established as eternally significant. It means that none of your vocations is unimportant. That each of your vocations is an opportunity to exercise your kingship as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Your work as as a physician, a teacher, a grandfather, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a lawyer, doesn't matter what you are. Your work is important to God, and your work is a place in which you can demonstrate the kingship of Jesus Christ. Your work is not merely valuable if you're a missionary or a pastor. You are the king's son, the king's steward, bringing the the principles of the kingdom of God to bear in your place of influence. There is no place of insignificance. We have the privilege, like Noah, of bringing life, preserving life. We have the, the privilege of giving away the message of eternal life, but we also have the privilege of bringing life to other people. We, we, we have the privilege of causing other people's lives to flourish because of the work we do. You think about that today. You think about every task that you have, even the ones that you think, this is so mundane, I, I wish I, were, I could do anything else. But somehow, if you think enough about it, somehow your work is causing other lives to flourish and do that for the glory of God. And we're stewards of grace. We have the privilege of, of giving testimony to a gracious God in our work, in our vocations, and in our worship. Uh, Noah very, just very clearly shows us how important corporate worship is. The first thing he did upon leaving the ark was building an altar and worshiping God. So as as important as your work is and as important as living life is, it never starts properly without beginning it on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, in corporate worship. 
And He's given you that whole day to be given to Him. Morning and evening, He gives you that day. It's a, it's a small ask, is it not? Just one day. Give me one day. Set aside the first day of the week for me. I've given you six others. But give me that day just to say thank you. And so that I can remind you that I am your prophet and your priest and your king. We're stewards of life and our vocations. We're stewards of grace in our worship and evangelism. Don't forget either that God gives us these sacraments to seal to us, to confirm to us that His Word is true. It would have been enough for, for God to say, it would have been enough for God to say to Noah, listen, I'm not going to destroy the earth again by water. You can trust my Word. But God knows that we need objective signs to confirm what He says to us. And so He gives the rainbow, which is a symbol of God hanging up His bow of war. You know, you bow hunters know that you don't hang your bow by a string, right? You hang it by the, you hang it by the, 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 the wood or the composite structure. You don't hang it by the string. When you're done hunting, you hang it up. And so the bow, when you see the rainbow, you don't see a bow that is turned here with God drawing His arrow of judgment against you. You see His bow hung up saying, I've paid the price in my son. There is no more cosmic destruction to come before I come to rescue my people. And just as he gives you that sign in the heavens, he gives you the signs and sacraments in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper and all the other means of grace, he gives you those to confirm to you his word is true. Well, just a final word on this tragic uh, last uh, scene in Noah's life. <clears throat> and, and, and just in case we were beginning to think that Noah was the Redeemer, Noah demonstrates that he's not the Redeemer. We need to look for somebody better. And so Noah not only grows uh, uh, grapes, he makes wine, and he uses, he drinks too much wine, and he is drunk and and, um, and naked and shames his family. Now, <clears throat> uh, this wine that God uh, allowed him to make, the Bible says elsewhere is to be a blessing. So it's not, the, it's not that he's prescribing teetotaling. He says, just as he does elsewhere in Scripture, be not drunk with wine. And uh, he also demonstrates uh, long before the country song that tequila makes your clothes fall off. I mean, it's just <laughs> drunkenness. Drunkenness is, always results in foolishness. Now, <clears throat> even though uh, God doesn't prohibit drinking, we do make far too many jokes about drinking. We treat alcoholism and abuse of alcohol too tritely in our culture, even our subculture. So is it any surprise that our children drink underage and abuse alcohol in college? 
Is it any surprise that alcohol poisoning, alcohol-related deaths, alcohol-related sexual abuse occurs rampantly on college campuses with very little uh, consequence? It's something we must not turn a blind eye to, and we must be careful in our own use of alcohol and the way we talk about it. Because as Noah demonstrates, uh, drunkenness is not a laughing matter. It's an attack on your dignity as an image bearer of God. Uh, John Calvin said about this, that, that Noah demonstrates that drunkenness dehumanizes the spirit. The drunk makes every effort to erase his image. Where is God's image? Who has ever admired a drunk? And if you've dealt with as many drunks as I have, you know they'd never say anything smart. And there's a confusion, as Calvin says. It is imprinted in our souls and in the intelligence we have and in our ability to distinguish between good and evil. And when all of that is erased and those who get drunk under those conditions cannot judge between black and white, it is certain they erase as much of God's image as is in them, so then you have the order of nature perverted. Now, the most tragic perversion of God's nature, one of, the, one of those tragic perversions of God's beauty in Noah, is his curse of Ham's son Canaan. There's a lot we don't understand about this, this narrative. We don't, understand why, we don't understand what Ham did that made Noah so angry. He looked on his father's nakedness. There's no other detail than that. There are an infinite number of, of, uh, of theories, but no certainty. It's just as Ham looked on his father's nakedness, saw his father naked, and then Japheth and Shem covered him up walking in backwards. We don't know what that means either. And then it's not God who curses Ham or assigns priority to, to Shem and Japheth. It's Moses, I mean Noah. And it seems that Noah is blame-shifting. So he makes Ham, Ham's son. Ham is not, Canaan wasn't even there, but he curses Canaan. He curses Ham's son. What, what, what's up with that? He's shifting blame, which is what alcoholics do, by the way. Not just alcoholics. It's what anybody who refuses to take responsibility for their sin does. They shift blame. It was his fault, her fault, mom's fault, dad's fault, the preacher's fault. It's somebody else's fault, but it's not mine. There's an even greater tragedy that resulting <clears throat> that, that, um, that is related to this text. I'm going a little long, I know, but this is critically important. And it is the tragic history of the application of this curse, uh, particularly the tragic application of this curse in the South. Um, much has been written about the abuse of this, the application of this curse to Africans. You may have seen that I grew up with this kind of this kind of teaching in Sunday school, the, the, the table of nations and, and the, 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 the chart that said, from Shem came the Asians and the Jews, 
from Japheth came the Europeans, and from Ham came the Africans. And then in, uh, uh, then in, in just isolated instances up to the 1800s, someone made a connection between the curse of Ham and blackness. And in the 1800s, southern theologians picked up on that and used it as a justification for slavery. It had not been the case before, but it was used as a justification so that they, they made this giant leap to say that it wasn't just Noah cursing him. This was God's curse. And God cursed the children of Ham who lived in Africa. And because of the blackness of their skin, they should be enslaved. It's one of the most egregious evils. Of course, slavery is the most egregious of evils. But to, 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 to find in Scripture a theological, biblical justification for it is damnable. And it still exists by some. There is no scientific uh, reason for You can't say that, that uh, uh, one group of people came only from, from one of these sons. They all had parts of each other's genes. Neither can you make the argument biologically, sociologically, geographically. It seems rather that what we, what we have is a recapitulation of, of the Genesis story that God recreated, gave life through Noah. He brought life back. And then there was a scapegoat. And that scapegoat is the one through whom redemption would come. One of those descendants of Ham was, was the father of Egypt. And God says later, out of Egypt I have called my son. It's metaphorical, of course. He was a Jew. He also had Gentile blood in him. Jesus had a mixture of Gentile and Jewish blood in him that he might be the Savior of all mankind. As dark as the story as, as ends in chapter 9, as dark as our own humanity and our own history can be, we have a Savior who has become the Savior of us all by His body, by His blood, by His DNA. And it's something like this. Uh, in Christian art, the church is often depicted as an ark. And so the, 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 there's the, this picture of the raging seas around, and then there's an ark, and Christ is in the ark with His people. Being joined to Christ in the church, you are in that, in that ark of God. And I, I, I grew up on, the, on, on um, the Tennessee River, Pickwick Lake, just below Wilson Dam. We were on the lower side of the dam, and uh, there were certain geniuses in our city who thought that the best fishing was under the dam, 
under the dam, which meant they waited for the water to go down and they pushed their boats underneath the guard gates next to the turbines and they would fish there. And then brilliantly, they would also drink while they were fishing there, so drunk that they couldn't hear the bells and sometimes they would get stuck. One of those geniuses and his buddies were sucked into the turbines and the, when they were spit out on the other side, the boat was destroyed except for the, for the bow and they crawled out of the bow. Christ has put us in Himself. He is the ark. And despite our stupidity, despite our rebellion, despite the foolishness and the egregious evils that we can commit, we cling to Christ. We're eternally protected. Christ is the ark. God has written this story for our encouragement, for our correction, uh, for our assurance. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your assurance in the gospel, which is found in the whole of Scripture. Thank you, Christ, that you are our prophet, our priest, our king, and you've commissioned us and enabled us to be kings. Help us, Lord, keep us from living as slaves to sin. Use us, Lord, to break down walls of separation, to bring life to those around us. Use us, Lord, to bring life and glory and reconciliation to this city in particular. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.